Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 146, The Concentration of Power and Wealth. So today I'm going to be talking in largely broad strokes, and that's because I want to give you a forced view of what we've been talking about over the last couple seasons. See, the thing is that something strange has been happening in our story. And to explain that, I'm going to briefly touch upon the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, simply because I want you to see how much things have changed. So as you might remember, when we began on Season 2, we saw Roman Britannia in collapse, and the introduction of a new cultural group that was a mix of farmers and mercenaries. And we call them the Anglo-Saxons. And these people were frighteningly poor. The Romano-British were not living the high life, at least not like they were under Constantine, and some of them certainly were in dire straits. And we do see plenty of evidence of public spaces being left to decay and others being deliberately torn down. And we also saw a shift from the heavily industrialized lifestyles, where a single town might only produce one particular product, to a more kind of localized economy. And we also saw a rise in defensive structures, likely in response to raids that came along with the destabilization that the region was going through. So yeah, the Romano-British were not doing super well, but even compared to those people, the Anglo-Saxons were really in a rough spot. And as an interesting contrast, not all of the Romano-British were doing terribly. We also saw places like Cabaret Congressbury that were British trading centers that thrived following the withdrawal of Rome. And they continued to thrive after the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons and even through the period where Gildas tells us that everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. So we had these Anglo-Saxons living in total squalor, relatively close to Britain's living pretty well, at least in comparison, though they probably were able to look back upon a much better time under emperors like Constantine. Anyway, so following that period of instability, we're told that the Britons got their lives back in order, and then they started to get more organized, though instead of into a large empire, they organized into individual kingdoms. And following that, they got, uh, well, they got a little bit decadent. So the takeaway here is that following the withdrawal, the Britons might have gone through some chaos and dealt with raids and violence, but they also stayed organized enough that they were later able to form into kingdoms, they retained literacy, and their economy stayed strong enough that apparently their leaders had enough excess wealth that they were able to get pretty damn decadent. So even though Rome had largely collapsed in the West, the Britons, at least some of the Britons, were still holding on and maintaining their power structures. And meanwhile, we had the settling Anglo-Saxons, who were living in pit houses. And generally, they were having a hell of a time of it. Their conflicts with the local Brits didn't always go that well, and we have records of flights of Germanic refugees from the island. And their burials, as well as the archaeological digs of their settlements, were really less than extravagant. Sometimes it's hard to remember when we're talking about the heptarchy of Anglo-Saxon Britain about how meager and low their beginnings were, and how it was the Britons who had the more stratified, wealthy, and organized societies on the island. But that is how it all began, with the Brits in kind of the pole position. And frankly, Anglo-Saxon life at this point was very lightly organized, almost not organized at all. You essentially had three classes. You had the nobility, the peasants, and the slaves. And movement between the peasant class to the noble class at this period in time was actually possible. 
and it was often due to individual qualities of the person rather than due to some sort of matter having to do with the right sort of blood. This wasn't a matter of, does Churdich have the right father? It was a matter of, can Churdich lead us well? Contrast that with the decadent British kingdoms that Gildas wrote about, many of whom were being led by descendants of prior famous leaders like Ambrosius or Elianus. So they had kingdoms, dynasties, wealth, and decadence. That's quite a difference from the Anglo-Saxons. So yeah, there was quite a cultural difference between East and West. And it's possible that due to their lack of resources and the general squalor that they lived in, the Anglo-Saxons simply couldn't be fussed with stratifying in those early days. I mean, they had bigger fish to fry than whether or not Unferth's family was fancier than Wolfgar's. They had angry neighbors. They were living in pit houses, which were probably just as crappy as they sound. And they had to deal with things like harvests. They didn't want to starve to death. And with pressing matters like that, who has time for workplace politics, which is essentially what these early days would have been like? We aren't talking about kingdoms, at least not in the East. We're talking about camps of refugees. And honestly, if we start calling these early settlements kingdoms, we probably should do the same for Rick's bands in The Walking Dead. I mean, you've got a small handful of people trying to survive. If that's a kingdom, then definitely Rick has a kingdom in the land of the zombies, you know? Anyway, that early period obviously didn't last forever, and we started to see the Anglo-Saxons organizing, and it wasn't long before we had our first Bretwalda, King Ayla of the South Saxons. So now we do have a king, and even the word king is interesting since it derives from the original word, kinning, the scion of the people. Now, they weren't writing diaries, so we can't say exactly what early Anglo-Saxons thought of their leaders, but the name itself implies that it isn't the person that's special, but rather, it's the people. The kinning is the scion of the people, not the magical leader, or the deer leader, or something like that. So maybe the leader embodies what's best about the people, or something along those lines. We typically see kings as ordained by God with some sort of special blood that's carried through their dynasty. You know, blue bloods. But here we have the early use of the word king, and it's in reference to the people, rather than calling attention to a specific dynasty. And we can see support for that kind of viewpoint in how leadership was selected in those early days. Namely, through an individual's qualities, rather than as a function of the ruling dynasty. So that's an interesting start for our story. But the trouble is that, at least within Western culture, and I suspect that it might be just human nature in general, it's pretty common that people want to give their children a leg up. You know, to give them advantages that we never had. So it probably isn't too surprising that it wasn't long before we saw leadership passing from father to son, as was the case with Churdich of the West Saxons and his son Chinerich. And we also started to see extravagant burials for noble children also known as Aethlings. These children were far too young to have earned any renown or worth for their own. They hadn't won any great battles, and they hadn't defeated anyone in single combat, except maybe for the epic struggle over the blanket with baby Unferth. And yet we see them being buried with goods that belong with an accomplished member of society, like a member of a war band. And why not? People are people, no matter how long ago it was, and people almost always love their kids. Seriously, that's a pretty constant truth, even when their kids are being assholes, and any parent will tell you that their kid can be a total asshole.
cold sometimes, but even then, they still love their kids. And so we see the beginning of leaders trying to give their kids whatever they can, and give their kids advantages in their growing society, regardless of whether or not it's earned, much like the Kardashians. And so, we have dynasties. And once there were dynasties, you started to have an expansion of the nobility. After all, not everyone could be king, but there were still plenty of family members. You had siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, and the like. And a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Well, in this case, we're seeing a rising tide for specific families. And these families started to marry amongst themselves. After all, what better way to secure their dynasty's position than to have allies from other powerful nobles? And that's why we start to see everyone and their brother marrying Kentish princesses, for example. Seriously, Kentish princesses were more sought after than that bland girl from Twilight. And for good reason, Kent has strong ties with Frankia. Through, you guessed it, marriage. So not only are we seeing powerful families marrying amongst themselves, and thus running the risk of having children without chins, but you also see them marrying into powerful noble families from overseas, which probably not only helped their position, but also presumably would help slow down that whole inbreeding issue. And while these families were solidifying their hold on power, they were also expanding their territory, first by attacking the Britons, and later by attacking each other. And in doing so, they were not only gaining land and food rent for their growing kingdoms, but they were also gaining loot and slaves. Now, it doesn't look like they were practicing chattel slavery, which is actually a rather uncommon and brutal form of slavery that was famously practiced in the U.S. But the Anglo-Saxons were still taking slaves. And much like it was the case in Rome and in many other nations in history, with this practice came greater stratification amongst the classes. After all, if you could have slaves doing your work for you, that gave you more time to further expand your power base, expand your wealth production, and generally move higher up in the ranks. Money breeds money. So slaves were quite an advantage for the wealthy. Not only that, but it made things even harder for the lower orders. Because if you had slaves doing a lot of the lower work, a lot of the farming work, what will poor Unferth do? He's getting boxed out of the job market. So things were getting stratified, and now you had slaves, landless farmers, landed farmers, land-holding nobles, warrior nobles, holy men, and of course, the ruling class. And the higher in rank you were, the greater your share of the available wealth was. Furthermore, it wasn't just slavery that caused a massive imbalance in power within society. You also had the issue of concubinage. A powerful man could have many concubines whereas a poor man could die without ever having a partner. Through this practice, the powerful families were able to essentially breed out lower families and rival cultural groups like the Britons. But for all the concentration of power amongst the dynasties that was occurring, society was still centered around things like gift-giving. And that meant that, in large part, despite the presence of a ruling dynasty, things were still run a bit like a cult of personality. The king held everything and gifted it out. If you were landed, it was merely because the king allowed you to hold that land. He could take it back at any time, and he could definitely take it back from your kids. That land was his, and that's why you paid food rent for it. So interestingly, society was stratifying, 
but power was still solely concentrated upon the king. It was the king and his warbands that made and enforced the law, and they could take everything from you at a whim. Now, as Chalin of Wessex had learned, if you're the king, that power is only yours as long as the people believed it was yours, and once they turn on you, you could find yourself on the run, and soon dying in battle with a small band of supporters who probably wished that they hadn't held on for so long. But really, it's always been that way. Power only resides where people believe it resides. And in this era of Anglo-Saxon society, in general, people believed it resided with the king and his thanes. And so with this growth in importance of strongmen, and let's be honest, that's pretty much what they were, something else happened. With King Aethelbert of Kent, we saw something new. They were no longer attacking those strange foreigners, the British. Now they were fighting each other. King Aethelbert changed everything with his attack on Wessex. After that, it wouldn't be long before Aethelfrith invaded Deira and formed Northumbria, which was unheard of in earlier Northumbrian history. Until then, the line of Ida was far too busy dealing with internal issues or fighting amongst the Britons. But with Aethelfrith, sort of following the model of Aethelbert, he made an aggressive push into a fellow Anglo-Saxon kingdom. And after that, it wasn't long before we had our first really serious shift in power in Anglo-Saxon Britain, with Raidwald of East Anglia killing Aethelfrith of Northumbria and installing Edwin on the throne. In a very short space of time, you had an Anglo-Saxon kingdom invading and taking over another Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and then you had a third Anglo-Saxon kingdom going and killing that king and putting a different person on the throne. This interest in foreign excursions into fellow Anglo-Saxon kingdoms would set a tone that would dominate the history of the Germanic East until a far greater threat from across the sea would force them to rethink about how they wanted to deal with the matter of rule. And that wasn't the only change that King Aethelbert of Kent brought to the island. He also brought the Roman form of Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons. Now the Anglo-Saxons had new reasons for war, but also new ways for the royal dynasty to hold on to power. Having a powerful dynasty is pretty good, in general, you know, all the way until you realize that your major competition is going to come from that same group that's supposed to be on your side, your own family. I mean, we've already seen several kings that were replaced by members of their own dynasty. We've seen brothers go to war against each other over the seat of power. We've seen cousins launch wars and cousins be killed. Dynasties can be deadly business. And while marrying your daughters off can be helpful for diplomacy, what do you do if you have a lot of daughters and you don't want to bring in a whole bunch of different families into your circle, since all those new families might have designs on your throne? Well, with the introduction of Christianity, there is now a new solution. Instead of marrying them off and potentially bringing in a new rival, you can put those daughters into an abbey, and they might become abbesses. And abbesses were formidable in this era. Furthermore, if you're concerned about the prevalence of males who have a claim to your throne, those monasteries could help out with that. As monks, they won't pose as much of a threat. And men of the cloth still wielded a great deal of power and could help give the dynasty further legitimacy through the implication that they were sanctioned by God. Now, of course, the road to conversion was rocky, and many of the major figures in the early conversion period were pagan, at least for a good portion of their lives. And as a result, there would be advances and retreats for the church. 
And where we are right now in the story, Iona is far more influential than the Roman-influenced See of Canterbury. But regardless of all of that, as conversion spread, those same dynasties didn't miss a beat and started to stack the deck in their favor and found ways to utilize this new structure to further enhance their position, or at the very least, deal with issues that were cropping up in how much power was concentrated at the top, and tried to, you know, head those dangers off of the pass. But as you've probably gathered from the recent storyline episodes, a lot of the shift in society really is best seen in Northumbria. Though other areas do give us a good view as well, I mean, Wessex gave us a good example of how dynastic politics could go terribly wrong, at least in the case of Chalin. And Kent showed us how wealth, trade, and good marriages are important, but they aren't everything, since Kent has largely sat dormant since the death of Ethelbert. East Anglia showed us how sometimes the cult of personality style of leadership could result in a total collapse of power upon the death of that particular leader as was the case with the death of Raidwald and the following rule of his rather lackluster son. East Anglia just collapsed. Mercia showed us how a talented war leader could rise in the ranks and alter the course of his kingdom, but also how dangerous it is to have your leader's legitimacy largely based upon military success, because once he lost and died, things kind of fizzled for Mercia. But with Northumbria... There we see this dynastic shift in full bloom. We started with the sons of Ida in successive rule. And then we had his grandson, Aethelfrith. And Aethelfrith really brought this culture of dynasties to bear with his war upon Deira and its attempt at a full dynastic purge of the Deiran royal line. Aethelfrith knew that he needed to eliminate the entire rival dynasty to secure his hold upon the kingdom. And that's significant. I'm sure he also had to establish dominion over the local Deirans in general. After all, there were deep divisions between Bernicia and Deira. And don't forget that travel wasn't common, and outsiders were viewed with fear and suspicion. So the locals were unlikely to see Aethelfrith kindly. But with that purge, Aethelfrith was demonstrating that despite the divisions between the two kingdoms, the real threat to his rule were members of the Deiran royal family, who were seen as having the right kind of blood to take back the kingdom. Besides, if they weren't a threat, why would he go to such extreme lengths to eliminate every last trace of it? He basically hunted Edwin to the ends of the earth, and you don't do that on a whim. So in Northumbria we see that the early days of egalitarian Anglo-Saxon society, where a peasant could rise to leadership, were gone. Now it was dynasties that were the real power in society, and kings sat at the very top of the heap. The strongman focus has truly come to fruition in the North, and interestingly, it came with a massive amount of bloodshed over a relatively small amount of territory. Territory that, given their lack of coinage and focus upon food rent, would have been rather hard to hold and draw income from. And yet they still wanted it, and fought fiercely for it. And I find that interesting, and I wonder if it was less a matter of economies, and more a matter of personal ambitions that led to this shift, and this just constant warfare. But I won't go so far as to tell you that this rise in strongmen and the increase in war over small patches of land were connected. There are all sorts of reasons why they might have wanted to fight. And the confluence could be simple coincidence. However, it is interesting that it went that way, isn't it? 
And this change in behavior and focus upon foreign expeditions to conquer other lands and nick all their stuff and also enslave their population was becoming so common that we have records that show that, regardless of the fact that the Irish Sea lay between them, even the Irish were getting rather worried about these expansive Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, especially the Northumbrians. And why shouldn't they be? Bernicia, in particular, was rather gifted at fighting against the Celtic West. Aethelfrith had defeated quite a few Western kings, kings that had ties to Ireland. So yeah, the Irish had reasons to be nervous. But yet, when Aethelfrith was defeated, his sons were giving sanctuary in one of the kingdoms that he had once defeated himself, Dalriada. And from the record, it seems like his sons even spent some time in Ireland while they were in exile. And then they returned with support from their Celtic allies to retake Northumbria. Bernicia had been fighting with the Celtic West for ages, and these were the sons of the man who had just butchered them. And yet they supplied those sons with troops to help them retake the kingdom. It's a fascinating twist in the story, and from my perspective, it had to be the result of this focus upon the importance of dynasties. I don't know how else you could explain it. To me, it looks like they protected Aethelfrith's heirs, at the very least to create a valid claim to the throne of Northumbria presumably with a hope that they could install someone who would be friendly to the West. And that sort of political move would only be possible if there was an assumption that these boys had the right to rule purely on virtue of their blood. Like I said, it's a big change from those early days. And now the Germanic East is starting to look a lot more like the early Celtic West that Gildas was complaining about with decadent royal dynasties that were too focused upon finding amongst each other and expanding their own wealth, rather than being focused upon being righteous and good leaders. And frankly, the good ones so far seem to die all too quickly, like Oswin and Sigebert. Anyway, with the ousting of Aethelfrith, things continued on the strongman path. Edwin, despite being from a different line, was remarkably Aethelfrith-like in many ways, and appears to have been heavily focused upon forming a Northumbrian hegemony. And boy, did he ever have a lot of success at that. He stretched his power south of the Humber and even into Wales. And this was also a new twist on Northumbrian power grabs. Now they weren't just beating up upon British and Anglo-Saxon neighbors in the north. They were also fighting in the south and bullying southern kings and making them into sub-kings. And this is where you start to get a sense that the people were starting to have designs on being a king of England, rather than just part of the heptarchy. And Edwin was certainly making progress towards being a king of England. Until, well, he died, and the line of Ida got back in control. But even with that shift in power and dynasties, with Oswald now ruling Northumbria rather than Edwin we still see a continuation of that focus upon royal families and powerful leaders in the north. And also, the focus upon stretching Northumbrian power into the south. Edwin's successor, Oswald, technically you could say Cadwallon was his successor, but I mean, he was really just running around killing everybody. So we're just going to say that Oswald was the successor. So he was quite the heavyweight in his own right. And he seemed like he might be able to accomplish what Edwin was trying to do, until he ran afoul of a, well, frankly, a very skilled Mercian warrior named Penda. And while I do love the story of Penda, his triumph at Mazer Field was pretty much just a blip on this cultural train that we're on. 
because functionally, all Oswald's death did was open the way for Oswiu. And in Oswiu, we see all the traits of the line of Ida condensed into a single person. Here was a man who was apparently ruthless, merciless, and singularly focused upon power. In the short span of his reign that we've covered so far, we see how far he's willing to go to get what he wants. Whereas Aethelfrith was willing to wipe out rival dynasties, his son, Oswiu, was a king who was willing to attack even his own dynasty, if needs be. And while mercy and warbands checked his power early on, he was still rapidly installing family members in positions where, in all likelihood, they would end up acting as his puppets. The Northumbrian hegemony is coming back. And in the space of a couple hundred years, we've gone from a culture where individuals could rise to lead a small group of, well, abysmally poor farmers, frankly, to a society that has grown in complexity and wealth. But much of that wealth has been concentrated towards the top. And as for power, that rests entirely in the hands of the king and his dynasty. That is, until people get fed up with him and kill him. But that's pretty rare. It hasn't been very long in our story, but society has grown incredibly complex by this point. And in the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about how that complexity has come about, and curiously, how despite the increased level of stratification, they were merely slicing up an ever-shrinking slice of the pie amongst themselves, while the ruling classes were living rather high on the hog. Okay, before I let you go, I don't usually do current events, but right before I recorded, I heard something amazing. Apparently, there's a U.S. secessionist militia that calls themselves, you're going to love this, the Praetorian Guard. Yeah, I just wanted to use that sound effect again. Anyways, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you should head over to our site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. There's all kinds of goodies there that you can go and check out, and of course, there's plenty of communities, and you should go join them all, because they all offer something different. And pretty soon, I should have a pretty big family tree up there, so you have that to look forward to as well, because frankly, there's a lot of Oz and Eiffel names, so I think you can use it. Anyways, thanks for listening.